to our podcast from the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, a former BBC correspondent, and my co-presenter is Tara O'Connor, who heads up Africa Risk Consulting. We both live, breathe, and work African affairs, and our podcast seeks to shed light on a continent which continues to fascinate and draw us in. Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. Hi, Tara. Yes, we've got a great guest on this, our 40th episode of The Ark Insider. 40 already. Can you believe it? 40. They do say that life begins at 40. So here's hoping. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it started off as a little lockdown project and it's really taken on a life of its own. So shortly we'll be hearing from Joseph Asunka. He's the CEO of the polling outfit Afrobarometer, who for years has been sampling African public opinion on everything from the continent's leaders and governments right through to what do young people consider priorities for the future. Here's a flavour of what he has to say. We'll look at the extent to which people want democracy, their commitment to democratic norms. Africans are solidly behind those institutions. When you ask them about their leaders and whether or not they're able to deliver, that's where the problem is. So there's a big gap between the demand and the supply side of democracy. That's Joseph Asunka. But first, let's take a quick listen to some of the stories which have made it into the news since our last podcast. A treacherous night ahead for Florida as darkness begins to fall and Hurricane Ian continues its catastrophic rampage. This year's Nobel Peace Prize winners have been announced. The committee awarded a prize to human rights advocate Alice Bailiaski from Belarus and two human rights organizations, one from Russia and one from Ukraine. We have an extended report tonight from Somalia where hundreds of thousands of people, many trapped by conflict, are facing extreme hunger and death after the worst drought in 40 years. Well, army officers in Burkina Faso have announced the overthrow of military leader Paul Henry Demiba. Captain Ibrahim Traore has been declared the new head of the West African country. On Friday, explosions and heavy gunfire were reported near the presidential palace in the capital, Ouagadougou. The Thai government says the entire nation is in grief after a former police officer killed at least 38 people in a gun and knife attack at a nursery. He then killed himself and his family following the massacre in Nuang Buolampu province in the northeast of the country. Well, can I pick up from that and then focus on West Africa, which is, uh, is becoming troublesome again? On the 30th of September, we saw yet another military coup in Burkina Faso. Ibrahim Traore has overthrown the existing military leader, Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Sandago, and borders have been closed, the constitution has again been suspended, and the government has dissolved. Now, this is the latest in a series of military coups and military interventions that, um, that have plagued Mali and Guinea. And since we last spoke, Karen, the body, the regional body, ECOWAS, has met and promised to impose sanctions on Guinea. You will remember it was very swift to impose sanctions on Mali after its first coup d'etat and is quite, is quite powerful in actually implementing those sanctions. 
Yeah, Tara, but I understand Mali, which itself underwent a coup last year, the third attempt in the past 10 years, has actually refused to support that sanctions call. Possibly not surprising, given the instability in its own backyard and its own experience with sanctions. Now, much of that instability has come with the fall of President Gaddafi in Libya in 2011 and the exodus of Tuareg fighters south to Mali. Of course, they were Gaddafi's private militia. Mali's now led by a military junta with President Goita at the helm. And it really sees ECOWAS, the regional body, as a puppet of France. And so it remains defiant. Yes. So why does all of this matter? Obviously, first, it's the interruption of constitutional rule, of democratic rule in each of these countries. Um, But it is also very important for mining companies. All three countries have major mining provinces with gold, iron ore and other minerals being widely uh, mined in those areas. And with all the disruption and particularly the anti-Western and notably anti-France sentiment that these coups have engendered, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And so it has opened the door to Kremlin-influenced mercenaries. And particularly, this is particularly the case in, in Mali, where the Wagner Group which is actually a mercenary group very closely allied to Vladimir Putin in Russia, um, has actually been providing military support to the military junta there. But in return for a substantial sum of money every month, which is not being paid. So now West Africa's uh, very good um, magazine, Jeune Afrique, is reporting that uh, the leaders of Wagner in Mali are actually pushing the government to hand them the take mining licenses back from Western companies and hand them to them. Can we switch over to South Africa, Tara? The big story here is the ongoing battle for control of the power utility ESCOM, which has been the site of some of the most audacious state capture or grand corruption. Yes, courtesy of the now infamous uh, Gupta family, which assisted former, assisted by former President Jacob Zuma, who was named in the latest Commission of Inquiry as being a key player in that criminal enterprise. Indeed. Well, Tara, whilst much of South Africa has been plunged into darkness for protracted periods of time in recent weeks, as a utility company tries to conduct essential maintenance after years of plunder and neglect, the extent of looting is becoming staggeringly clear. Now, in a really interesting interview with Defence Web Tara, Andre de Reiter, now he's the CEO of ESCOM, said that one billion rand per month, that's about 56 million US dollars, is being stolen from the power utility and its affiliates by organised criminal syndicates. Can I repeat that figure again? 56 million US dollars, one billion rand per month. And as if to underscore that powerful vested interests are at stake, as Dorita ruffles feathers at the top there and as a new board is appointed, is a rather sinister story that's emerged just a few days ago. Apparently a bug possibly a listening or tracking device, was found in the CEO's car. That's possibly not surprising given the highly politicised role of the intelligence service in South Africa. No one's saying they definitely put it in there, but certainly the fingers being pointed in that direction. And the fact that Dorita now relies heavily on bodyguards. But it does beg the question that if the CEO is being carefully monitored and his car tampered with, Who else in the company is at risk? And now, Karen, please let me tell you about Zambia for just a moment, because it is such a good news story. And not just for that reason, but also I grew up there and I'm rather proud of of it becoming a good news story. 
The president, Hakainde Hichilema, is now a year in office and he's really making his mark on the economy. If you judge the health of an economy by the performance of its currency, the kwacha has been one of the best performing currencies around the world. Uh, Hichilema um, has managed to secure a very good deal with the IMF, but a highly performing currency means that actually the country's imports uh, are less costly, Mm -hmm. which in turn means that they are winning the battle against inflation. And counter-cyclical to all the stories of the rest of the region, inflation is coming down in Zambia. One of the things that will come out of the IMF deal, of course, is that a lot of the country's debtors, commercial debtors, are now lining up. And apparently the next step is that the president and his government will deal with them. Interesting. Yeah, President Hichilema has been something of a surprise. Um, I remember you said his nickname was Calculator Boy because of his background as an accountant. And I do think a lot of people underestimated him, myself included, despite the fact that actually I spent a bit of time with him, Tara, and his family during his court battles against the administration of Edgar Lunga, the former president, who was absolutely determined to end Hichilema's political career with spurious treason charges. Do you remember he didn't give way on the side of the road when the presidential cavalcade came bast? So Hichilema is a man we have said in the past, Tara, we should lobby to make an appearance on our podcast. Obviously, he's an extremely busy man trying to fix the economy. But um, I don't know. There is a lot. <laughs> Here's hoping. Here's, Here's hoping. hoping. Here's Fingers hoping. crossed. Aim high. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and my colleague, Tara O'Connor. Our guest on this edition of the podcast is the CEO of Afro Barometer, an Africa-focused polling organisation focusing on issues of democracy and governance. Prior to that, Dr. Joe Asunka held a number of posts, including as a senior lecturer at the University of California, focusing on African politics, as well as working at a number of grant-giving bodies and African think tanks. Joe, welcome to the ARC Insider. You're in California as we speak, I gather. Yeah, thank you so much, Karen. Yes, I'm in California at the moment. Well, you're talking to me here in South Africa in Johannesburg. Um, Tara's with us. Yes, I'm here. And on this occasion, I'm speaking to you both from London. Hello, Joe. Good to meet you. Hi, Tara. It's nice to meet you. Now, Joe, let's go straight to it. Much of your work has focused on elections. We've just had elections in Kenya where voter turnout was around, what, 56% of registered voters. Nigeria goes to the polls next year. And in 2019, it was around 49% of voters. That begs the question, given that elections are quite a blunt instrument to hold power to account, do you get a sense that elections really matter to ordinary people across Africa that you speak to? All right. So for the people we speak to, by and large, lots of Africans, the large majorities of Africans believe that they want to say that they want to choose their leaders through open, honest and transparent elections. And so uh, when it comes to you know, being able to determine who should be the leader of a country or who should be a leader at any level of um, political governance, Africans certainly are solidly behind the idea of having open, honest elections. Yet the voter turnout is pretty low. Yes, so I think it's becoming lower and lower. You know, when um, Africa started democratizing in the late 1980s, 
through the early 1990s. You know, turnout in most countries was in the high 70s, in some cases, even 90%. Mm. We've seen that to taper off. It does seem like that's um, a, a, a symptom of democracy. As people get more and more settled into the routine of democratic governance, mm -hmm. two things happen, you know, either it is apathy in terms of the time it takes to go and vote, and also overall giving the sense that people are increasingly skeptical about the effectiveness of democracy to deliver on their needs. Mm, mm, mm. So what I hear from you is that the roots of Africa's democracy are actually strengthening. And yet the we, what we see in, in fact is that it's sort of one elite just switching to another. Has the elite managed to control the process? So when people talk about democratic decline, the unfortunate thing is that the decline is from the supply side. Leaders are on not able to deliver what the citizens actually need. And so when we look at the extent to which people want democracy, their commitment to democratic norms, Africans are solidly behind those institutions. When you ask them about their leaders and whether or not they're able to deliver, that's where the problem is. So mm -hmm. there's a big gap between the demand and the supply side of democracy. Yeah. Unfortunately, some of our leaders try to manipulate, you know, even including changing constitutions to allow them to run. And that's a big challenge for democracy on the continent. Yeah. And I guess if people don't feel they're being heard by their leaders, there's obviously the risk of, of popular uprisings we've seen in Sudan, Algeria, Egypt, Libya. Um, I noticed you did some interesting research at the end of last year that showed that one in four respondents said they'd taken part in government action, either a protest or they'd tried to hold their leaders to account by seeing a member of parliament. I mean, are you, does that fill you with optimism um, in just in terms of other avenues for people seeking to have their voice heard? Or, or do you feel that we are approaching a, a situation where if people don't feel that they're here, that they're, they're getting we call it service delivery here in, in South Africa, um, that we will see more popular uprisings. Right. So I think that's because um, when you push people to the wall and they have nowhere else to go, they, it will just explode. And some, I think sometimes some of our African leaders assume that they, especially, I mean, we have others who have thought that their people like them so much and they want to stay in power because people say they like them so much, which is not the case because our data don't, do not show that mm. it's not government or presidents who want to stay beyond their term limits are loved by their people. It's not, that's not true at all. And so I think there are different ways that people express themselves. And you can say, especially among young people and young people in the arts, you know, music, they use music, they use other ways and forms of engagement. And when you see some of these protest movements that are emerging in, play, in different places, it is largely driven by people who have gotten to their limit and the only thing they can do is to hit the streets and protest. And I think this is likely to happen more and more as some of these presidents continue to stay in power. But there's fear though, isn't, isn't there a lot of fear that goes with that though? Because obviously elites are able to put down protests in, in quite a dramatic way. So people are fearful of, uh, of going onto the streets. That's, that's, a, that's a fear. And then, of course, that's then what happens when the military intervenes, mm. people begin to celebrate. If, if the system is not delivering or if your country is spiralling out of control, 
you are just hoping that somebody will come in and step in and break it so that it doesn't spiral out of control and then you can begin to think about, okay, what next? How can we then, you know, revert back to democratic governance? Mm -hmm. And so when you see Africans celebrating military rule, it's not that they are in military interventions. It's not that they support military rule. They absolutely, more than 70% of Africans say they don't want military rule. But when a democratic government is not performing and just running the country aground, then a military intervention sort of brings some relief. And that's where you see these kinds of celebrations. But it's not a sign that they support military rule. Mm, interesting. A lot of the harnessing of, uh, of that popular discontent, we're starting to see an increase, are we not, in populism, the tactics of populism creeping into African politics. The sort of rhetoric that you see that's manipulated or used behind Donald Trump in America, Brazil's Bolsonaro, and indeed in the UK by Boris Johnson. South Africa, we've seen Julius Malema, who leads the minority opposition party, the uh, Economic Freedom Fighters, is often cited as an example of this sort of populism. And Kenya's uh, William Ruto presented himself to the electorate most recently as the as the humble hustler, you know, the uh, the man of the street, and arguably paying, playing the populism card that we see, we see Brazilian-style populism card. You know, will people be fooled for long? We always trace this back to our political parties and the way the political parties are organised. Because if we don't have democratically run political parties, then you wouldn't expect, because the parties then allow populist candidates to emerge... And then once they emerge from the political parties, citizens really have no choice because then these are the folks that the parties are presenting to them. So, you know, studies, we have always argued that if we want to consolidate democracy on the continent, we need to deal with the political party administration. One, the way the parties are organized, and two, the way political parties are funded. And what would be your remedy for funding, for example? Political party financing should be done in such a way that the electoral management bodies should know who donates to political parties and the donations to political parties has to be open and transparent so that anybody who is giving resources at least at a certain level should be known, even if they're individual donors who are contributing $5, $10. I'm just curious, you know, you've been doing this for a while. What's been the biggest surprise in all your years of polling? First of all, there are certain myths about Africa and democracy that we realize have been busted completely. Yes. The first thing is, you know, the assumption that Africans wouldn't care about human rights and, you know, democratic norms. All they want is probably just their economic needs. I mean, we have busted that myth a long time ago. Africans understand democracy. They are committed to democratic norms. And over time, the biggest surprise to us has been asking Africans, do you want a government that is effective, even if it is not accountable to the people, that is able to deliver benefits and economic goods without being accountable? Or you want an accountable government, even if it is not very effective Mm. in delivering? And over time, over the last decade, we've seen that the number that prefer an accountable government has increased by 10 percentage points across the board. And so it gives us a sense that democratic norms are actually deepening because as people become more and more, you know, used to their democratic rule, people have become increasingly more vested in accountability. What do you see the main effect of that, um, of that, that change? Right. I think the biggest effect of that is even though democracy at the supply level seems to not be forthcoming, 
you know, the fact that Africans are still resilient and standing by democracy tells us that this is not uh, a project that can easily be dismissed off. Like, you, you can't introduce authoritarian rule in a way that Africans, that would erode the, the commitment to the, the Africa's democratic norms, uh, commitment to democratic norms. And so I do think fundamentally the building blocks of a democracy is the people. And if the people are committed to democratic norms, then it becomes easier to build on that when you get a true Democrat who is leading the country. And I think, you know, it's much easier to strengthen democracy on the continent as long since we have more than 70%, in some countries more than 90%, being solidly committed to democratic norms. I mean, just turning, Joe, to how you actually conduct your work and how you actually get your polling data and also to discuss any commercial applications that uh, that it may have. Our surveys we still focus on face-to-face interviews. So in each country, we work with the, statistics, the government statistics bureau using the population census framework. Because once the population census is carried out, or the entire country is divided into enumeration areas, smaller areas that contains uh, about 100 to 150 households across the country. So the entire country is divided in this way. And what we do is to take that frame and randomly select enumeration areas from all across the country. And regardless of where the enumeration area lands, because this is a random process, it can be in some of the remotest inaccessible areas in the country. We still send our enumerators there. We have still continued to do face-to-face interviews because it prov- it has it provides several advantages. That I mean, as you mentioned, if you were to use phone service, you may end up with just urban respondents, mm-hmm. and the results will be hugely skewed. The same way, worse of of course, internet survey it will even be much more skewed because this will just be people who are wealthy and can access the internet. And so, we haven't still developed a good methodology yet for phone surveys. We are beginning to build that now. But the gold standard for survey research is the face-to-face interviews. We randomly select our enumeration areas, and then we send our surveys into the communities to do the interviews. You know, when we've chatted in the past, you've given. Um the elections in Uganda as a really good example. Tell us a little bit about that, about the kind of uh, projections that were made um, and the skewed nature of that by other polling groups that were only focusing on urban areas. Right. So when we did a pre-election survey in Uganda, there are lots of other predictions out there. And I think for most people, when you are in Kampala or any of the big cities in Uganda, you are talking to people in urban areas, you will just feel like this government is going to lose the elections. When we carried out our survey, because we take a nationally representative sample, what happens in the villages is very different than what happens in the cities. And so when our polling predicted that the ruling government is going to win the elections, lots of people were, you know, up in them. They felt we had, because India live in the city and they hear the sentiment and they know that people don't like this government. They're going to vote the government out. And this was and Bobby, Bobby Wine running, right? So he was a figure yes, that a lot of people, he got a lot of media, a lot of publicity, and uh, 
it's certainly a lot of publicity in the urban areas, yeah. Certainly. And so, I mean, when, when you have that going and you take a sample that is only largely urban or even just going around and talking to people in the urban areas, you'll get the sentiment that, you know, there's no way the ruling government will survive. When we combine that by pooling together all the views from the rural communities, it's a completely different picture. So many of the media organisations as well, don't they? Unfortunately, Karen, this is our background. Yeah. People fly into a country, they'll fly to the capital, they'll get the capital's views. Absolutely. And it's totally skewed and it goes out around the world, unfortunately. I was just wondering, with sort of the rapid uptake of mobile phone technology across Africa, that's likely to sway the way you do the polls in the future, surely? It, it will. And in, in some ways, when we started Afrobarometer in the late 1990s, I started exactly in 1999, nobody thought we could do polling in Africa. It felt like this is not a continent where you can really get a good sample because structures and um, households are not constructed in ways that are neatly laid out that you can identify and collect this information. I mean, we defy those odds and we have over time build a methodology that works and you can get really good quality data from our service. And not just good quality data, but also creating opportunities for ordinary people who would otherwise not even experience government in any way to be able to lift their voices, or at least elevate their voices in the policy-making circles. And so I do think in, in many ways, you know, we were able to weather that storm and develop a methodology that allows us to now conduct surveys on the continent and get good quality data. Often the actual issues that matter to ordinary people at the moment is getting food on the table. And obviously that impacts the quality of voting um, and so on. And with a, a growing, more youthful population, how do you envisage the next decade of polling? Um, will you move away from polling and focus on other, other issues? And if so, what? There are lots of topics that are of interest. So what we do is our instrument is designed so that we have 60% of the questions that are fixed and we track those over time. So issues of governance and democracy, the economy, people's experiences with public institutions and public agencies. Those are questions that we think are core to Africa's democratic project, project that we should maintain and ask them over time. But from time to time, 40% of the questionnaire is now reserved for new issues that would emerge in the future that we were not aware of but would need to capture. So, for example, COVID-19 has become a core part of what we're doing now. Climate change we had to cover extensively the last round and it would likely continue going forward. And then, of course, when Roe v. Wade happened in the U.S., we started asking, how are African attitudes towards safe abortion? There are two things we consider. When a topic is said that attitudes about it will not change too rapidly, we would usually drop a particular topic and then go back to it after maybe one or two rounds so that we'll see whether there has been any change. So if, if we know that some attitudes are sticky, because in terms of poverty and other things, those change quickly. But when it comes to some of the attitudes, you know, like people's views about um, certain topics, sometimes those, those don't change too rapidly. And if they don't change too rapidly, we try to leave space so that we can come back to it and then see whether there has been any change. It's really interesting. Well, I've been watching Afrobarometer for many, many years, and I think probably Tara as, as well. And 
it's given a really interesting picture of 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 the continent and and as you say it's it's I, I like the fact that you are actually looking at issues that are emerging issues um in a very very kind of considered serious way and indeed for the public good which is uh, there's not enough of that so joe from afrobarometer thank you very much for being on the arc insider <laughs> You've been listening to The Arc Insider with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. If you're interested, Arc publishes in-depth risk briefings on 22 countries around the continent. You can subscribe to these at info at africariskconsulting.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Our sound engineer was Ludwig Boer, and this podcast is a Karen Allen International production. Bye for now.